Thank you for listening to NSL Double Talk. Never stop learning. At Never Stop Learning, we connect you with engaging experts who join you and your friends or colleagues in conversation at a location of your choosing. With NSL Double Talk, we are bringing the Never Stop Learning model directly to you. Each podcast will feature two experts in conversation on topics that range from global affairs to wellness to arts to innovation. Sometimes the experts agree, sometimes they don't, but we will never stop learning and never stop laughing. That's why I know the haikus will work, right? Because it's a little (laughs) beatnecking. NSL Double Talk featuring Kate O'Neill and David Polgar Ryan. Their topic today is Perspectives on Ethics and Regulations in Emerging Technologies by a Tech Humanist versus a Tech Ethicist. Kate is founder and CEO of KO Insights, a strategic advisory firm committed to improving human experience at scale. She is commonly known as the Tech Humanist for companies like Google, Etsy, and Cisco. She regularly keynotes industry conferences and corporate events advocating for the future of humanity in an increasingly tech-driven world. Author of four books, including her latest, Tech Humanist, Kate's insights and expertise have been featured in Wired, USA Today, and she frequently makes appearances on BBC, NPR, NBC, and countless other news media. David is a pioneering tech ethicist who paved the way for the hotly debated issues around Facebook, privacy, ethical design, digital well-being, and what it means to be human in the digital age. David is a three-time TEDx speaker and tech writer who has been featured on CBS This Morning, Fast Company, LA Times, CNN, New York Post, and countless other outlets. David is the founder of All Tech is Human, an initiative to better align tech and the human interests of users and society, and is the co-host of Funny as Tech, a live show and podcast that tackles the thorniest issues in tech. We are so excited to welcome Kate and David to NSL Double Talk. Hey, David. Hey, how's it going, Kate? It's going pretty well. So, Kate, I'm really excited, right, talking to you as the tech humanist, uh, just because there's so much going on in this area of ethics. It just seems like every morning I wake up, first I check to make sure the world hasn't fallen apart, uh, and, and if it hasn't. How do you check that? <laughs> I just look outside. And if, <laughs> you know, if, it, if, it's, if it's raining meteors, then, then I know that, uh, you know... <laughs> Then, that's, then that's my time is, my time has come. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it also kind of feels like we're in this pivotal moment of, hey, are we headed towards a dystopian future with tech? And I think that's where both of us seem to be playing around in that space. Yeah. So are yeah. you are you optimistic? I know we're both kind of talking to each other, right? No interview. Yeah, yeah. Although it'd be fun to just put you on the hotspot. But uh, <laughs> are you are you optimistic about where we're headed? I, you know, I am. I, someone referred to me after one of my keynotes as an optimistic futurist, and I love oh, that that's description, good. honestly. I thought, I want to be that. I want to be able to be the optimistic voice about tech and the future of tech for humanity. Yeah. But I think in order to do that, I have to also be the realist. And I have to be able to be pragmatic and say, like, hey, look, there are some real watchouts that we need to talk about, right? We need to be talking about the overreach of surveillance technology. Mm-hmm. We need to be talking about algorithmic bias. And we need to be talking about, you know, how emerging technologies like AI and other automation types of technologies have so much potential for capacity and scale and reach that we need to, you know, really be mindful and, and intentional about how we use them. At the end of the day, it comes down to what we inject of ourselves into it. Yeah, definitely. 
And that's where I think that for me, the tech humanist element really comes to play is like it's a human equation, a human decision as to what we focus on. Right. As a tech ethicist. Mm -hmm. Where do you fall in this? Because there's a much bigger question at play right now yes. around ethics and tech and AI and so on. Well, I honestly think that we need more people who are looking at the potential negative externalities with tech. The way I like to frame it, I know we both a lot of times speak with tech founders and startups. And what you find is that type of person, they tend to be overly optimistic. So they're, they're creating a tool and they're saying, all right, best case scenario with all good actors as people, as good people. Okay here's what's going to happen. So they're looking at the future and they see a straight line. Whereas somebody like my, myself, I also have a background as an attorney and educator. Hey, if you talk to attorneys, they're always going to give you the worst case scenario. And I got to say, that's why a lot of people with legal backgrounds are getting involved in the space because you frankly need somebody to say, okay, you have the optimist, the founder who's like, best case scenario, here's what we need to build. Let's inspire people. But you also have the person to say, what happens if an authoritarian government leverages this? Right. Where is this going to go? Have we thought about the communities that are getting impacted by this? That's the sideways. And then you say, okay, how can we then more, if we know the, the sideways part, how can we then more thoughtfully move towards the future? We need to move forward, but we need to move forward, like you said, with some level of intention, with actual forethought. Yeah, so it is more than meteors falling from the sky. I think so. <laughs> I think so. We need to present some level of agency. You know, I saw a quote the other day when they were talking about Clearview AI, the, the article by Kashmir Hill in the New York Times that really got a lot of people's attention. Mm -hmm. And a quote really struck out at me because it was one of the investors, and he said something akin to, well, this may lead to a dystopian future, but hey, what can we do? <laughs> But for a brief moment, we made such value for shareholders. <laughs> exactly. We made a lot of money, uh, yeah. <laughs> but hey, you know. And, and I think that's really a misreading on, on how the future develops, right? Because the future is, is up to what we're creating, what we allow, what we don't allow, right? Because 100%. you talked about futurists. I got to tell you, I talk to a lot of futurists. If I listen to these futurists, like the solely the people selling me on, on what's going to happen in the future, well, I'd be freaking, I'd, I'd be riding over here on my 3D printed, you know, Segway <laughs> that I bought with Bitcoin. But guess what? None of, that, none of that happened. Because people were trying to sell you sometimes on the future, also trying to sell you a product. Yeah. Right? I mean, where's my Google Glass? Where's your Google Glass? I see your eyes. Yeah. What yeah. happened? What happened? I've got the, you know, sunglasses on the top of my head all the time. <laughs> so I'm ready. It never has been the right moment. But I feel why, like we're getting closer. Think, but why do you this think it hasn't question. been the right moment? Why hasn't it been the right moment? It's, there's the whole idea of the way that tech advances and the way that culture advances and society advances. You know, I think about the idea of punctuated equilibrium mm -hmm. in evolutionary biology. You know, the idea that evolution doesn't happen all in a gradual shift, yeah. right? It's it's these bits and fits and starts. It's like, you know, everything goes along and goes along and goes along. And then all of a sudden there's this huge mutation or adaptation that takes place. And, you know, I'm oversimplifying it because I'm not an evolutionary biologist. Yeah, yeah. I'm a tech expert. But what I see is that, that there's a kind of a parallel idea that happens within tech. You kind of 
you, you have to seed the idea out there a few times. It's like nothing's really changing, nothing's really changing. But people have seen the idea. They saw Google Glass. They saw Snapchat mm -hmm. Spectacles. So one of these days, there's going to be a wearable that's an eyeglass type of format. And it's going to be the right moment because people have already seen it. It's already kind of been out there. We didn't adapt to it at that moment. Mm -hmm. But all of a sudden, everybody's going to adapt to it, just like we did with mobile phones. It's not as if the iPhone was the very first smartphone that you know, or that type of format that ever existed. But it exploded mm -hmm. because everybody had kind of seen you know, Palm Pilots and Blackberries and everything else for so long that it was the right moment, that we were ready for it to be an explosion. But I'm going to push back a, a little bit. Sure. I think there's a lot of wrinkles that happen with every innovation that an innovator doesn't usually think about. For example, here we are talking in New York. We're often at shows. Every time there's a, there's a show, you know, a big show, they always say, no recording. Right? I was at one recently, and <laughs> the guy was walking around taking away everybody's cell phone every time they try to, to take it out and say, I want, I want my selfie. And they say, no, you can't do that. Whereas if you had adopted something like Google Glass, my God, yeah. Broadway wouldn't know what to do, right? <laughs> because they would say, well, you can't record, but now everybody's wearing something on their face. I can't take something off their face because I don't want to touch their body, right? That would be inappropriate. I have to be careful what I would do. My point is that every time we create something, every time an innovator says, hey, I've got an idea. We're going to have self-driving cars. And then, then they say, well, okay, sounds cool. But what happens if it snows? What happens if somebody is grossly intoxicated, but then they need to be able to still take over for the car right now? Are they allowed to get in their self-driving car? What happens if they, they tell the self-driving car to speed? What does it do? Yeah. Right? Like all these, these aspects that we haven't fully fleshed out. But I, I'll push back a little bit on Please, that, yeah. too, that I feel like innovation doesn't really wait for social readiness, right? Mm, true. And there's plenty of examples that we can talk about now, like with facial recognition mm -hmm. technologies that we don't really have the cultural understanding of how far-reaching this could be and what that means for us, that our face data and place data is associated with so many imprints and touch points and so on. We don't really have the corporate oversight. We don't have the government regulations. We don't have mm -hmm. anything in place. And yet there's nothing stopping this explosion of technologies that are, that are showing up and they're just getting deployed left and right into civic space. Well, I think that's why there's another way to think about it. The trap, a lot of times people fall in. They say, well, David, that sounds good, but... Uh you can't slow down innovation. What can you do? So they adapt. Well, what, <laughs> what, you, what you can do, Kate, is, is you can speed up consideration. There's a huge delta between how fast we create and how slow we consider. And I think that's where the frustration happens from. A lot of innovators have capitalized on this slowness, especially if you're an Uber Eats, especially if you're Uber before that, right, or Airbnb. They come into a community and they say, oh, well, the laws can't adjust quick enough, so we're just going to go in, spend a lot of money, and then, and then the public is going to be on our side, and then we, we wag the dog. And that's the strategy that they employ. But the point is, we know, especially you mentioned with facial recognition, we know that the laws are, are moving too slow, and the communities are saying, wait, wait a minute, what about us? If we could really get involved in the politics of technology, and frankly, I think that's where we're headed the next five yeah. years. Yeah, for sure. The politics of technology. All of these issues, they sound very tech but they're just going through tech. They're all social issues. They're dealing with social justice. And frankly, the frustrating part that, that I see on my end, just talking to a broad group of whether it be technologists and community leaders, org leaders, is that people feel like they're being impacted by tech 
but they have no voice in it. So I, I jokingly like to say, no application without representation, mm-hmm. right? We're going to reach a, a point in the future, and maybe that point is now, where we're going to say, wait a minute, my smartphone is, is changing how I see the world. It's changing how I get the news. It's changing who I date, the jobs that I see or don't see. Mm-hmm. That's my trajectory in life. That's my, my, my psyche. That's a big there's, deal. There's so many dots that have to be connected for sure. people first before they can understand that their smartphone is limiting their options as to what jobs they can have and who they can date and things like that. I mean, obviously, an app that shows you dating potential is mm-hmm. a lot more directly connected. But if you have to go the long way around the farm you know, to connect how it came to be that all of your touch points and, and social data and everything was taken into consideration, whatever was publicly available or even privately available once you connected your Facebook or whatever mm-hmm. into the app, that's going to be a very complicated explanation for people. And it's why I think we're having a, a lot of resistance to you know getting any kind of traction with public consideration of things like facial recognition and so on, like getting people to really understand what's at stake yeah. there. And when you, I love that, that uh, idea of consideration, innovation versus consideration. Mm-hmm. Once you take an idea, like you're talking about the gig economy, and you take it to scale, it's an entirely different consideration, entirely different discussion from when you're just talking about it in theory, in the abstract, yeah. right? Like, you know, it sounds great in theory. And now we're seeing so great. There's, there's such an interesting pushback going on especially here in New York, about food delivery services, mm-hmm. right? Is now people are starting to say, well, well, wait a minute. What's their impact on how they're driving around? <laughs> Every day I almost get yeah. run over by, by a person on one of these like bikes that are going like 30 miles per hour. And more than that, what's the impact on, on restaurants? Right, if restaurants right, exactly. don't get foot traffic, is that bad for them? And does that mean that they're going to you know, have to change the way they format their real estate? And you know, there are all these restaurants that are popping up on Seamless and Grubhub and all these services that aren't really restaurants. Ghost kitchens. Yeah. That's why the founder uh, of Uber, that's where he's heavily involved with, these ghost kitchens. Yeah. Like, and you're what just does gonna that, what does that mean about a place? What does that mean about a city? What does that mean about culture yeah. that we don't have convening points? Right, we don't have places to go to interact with each other that you know restaurants represent mm-hmm. or other kinds of, of gathering places represent. So we come back to well, pixels in place. <laughs> yeah, I, well, I was thinking about that the, the, the other day when I was you know in line to buy something at a, a CVS and you know it's all self checkout. Didn't see a, a soul, and obviously you have Amazon. A lot of those stores popping up with Amazon Go. And that's something I, th- I think we want to make sure we, we don't head towards, right? There's so much potential optimism of what we can do in the future, but I think we want to make sure that it's not a lonely future, right? Because I, there's a lot of aspects, a lot of trends that seem to be pointing towards, okay, we have these ghost kitchens, <laughs> we have all self-checkout, but we also have a need as humans to still relate to one another, to still have conversations. And I think that's why on the flip side, you've had these counter-movements towards IRL types of uh, moments, yeah. gatherings and, and meetups and, and things of that nature. And, and I think that's because as humans, we have an equilibrium that we want to reach. And sometimes with over-digitalization, we have a counterweight that comes in to say, all right, give me something visceral. And that's you, all the trends of recent years, like adult coloring books, right? Yeah. Mindfulness. <laughs> They're all about kind of reaching that point of saying, I like tactile feel. Right. You know, I, I like to touch something. Well, sure. And I think I talk a lot in my work about meaning as, mm-hmm. as when we think about what makes humans human, 
it's this notion of meaning. Like we crave meaning. We seek meaningful experiences. And when I talk about meaning, I, I say I've been a student of meaning for a few decades now and I've collected all these different layers and levels of meaning that we talk about when we talk about yeah. meaning. All the way from, you know, sort of the semantic level of what we pass through in communication with each other, all the way out to the most abstract, like existential and cosmic levels and everything in between. And I think it's really important that we understand that those kinds of experiences you're talking about, like coloring books mm -hmm. and tactile experiences, we are drawn to them because we use our senses to make meaning. And it's really important that even as we create digital experiences and immersive and integrated experiences, that we're thinking about using our senses in intentional ways. And we're thinking about creating these really dimensional human experiences that rely on an understanding of meaning underneath of them. I love that. A lot of innovations in recent years have given us that shortcut promise, mm -hmm. right? Imagine if you can just go online and click a button, accept people, and then they're your friends. Right, and, and then you're, you're never lonely. You're always you're always loved, right? You have these base considerations as a, as a human to be wanted and desired and have friendship. And, and you can rack up little hearts that represent your popularity. Little hearts, because I I always find that really comical or comically sad that there's seemingly a, a few people that I know where when I actually reach out to say, all right, let's let's grab a cup of coffee. And, that seems to be a struggle. It's the asynchronous communication versus synchronous communication. Yeah. We as humans are complicated and messy. I think sometimes we can get so used to the easiness, you know, of just, I can cleanly have something. Humans aren't clean. No, and I think that's we're a, not clean. <laughs> not, not at all. And I think, I think that's a big question we have to deal with is, a lot of our innovations are giving us the path of least resistance, but we know from just throughout life and poetry and things like that that oftentimes it's the resistance, right? It's, it's, You're going to go there? You're going to bring poetry into this discussion? <laughs> I end every podcast with a haiku. <laughs> I really, you know, uh, I really loved what you said earlier, so I kind of want to bring that back because you were, you were saying that these issues are, are frankly kind of complicated, so here we are talking about this existential crisis that we're having as humans, and then its relationship to our smartphone and, and other emerging tech. And to your point, uh, this is a you know an A to a Z, and unless you cleanly connect why this is relational or why this is impacted, so I'd love to hear your advice because frankly I think that I personally probably struggle with it because my brain connects a lot of dots. You know, that's just how I love interrelationships. And I think that can also be a struggle if you're trying to tell somebody, hey, this is why your smartphone's affecting your reality and yeah. how you get the news and, and therefore it's your psyche without it cleanly saying, here's what is being impacted, right? Well, I think you you said it earlier. You know, you're talking about with the gig economy that and, and other types of examples about this idea of consideration. And to me, what you're talking about there is the second and third degree effects and beyond, right? Yeah. It's systems thinking. It's mm -hmm. making sure that we understand what the impacts are going to be. And again, I talked about at scale, but I think there's micro and there's macro, right? Mm -hmm. Like the macro considerations at scale of the second and third degree effects are things like we're talking about with food delivery and what does it do to restaurants and what does it do to our sense of culture and our sense of place. But then there's the micro that has more to do with sort of user experience and what happens within our own personal interactions with technology and within systems that are created that tech guides us through. 
And then the one example I always use, you actually mentioned Amazon Go. Yep. But I think this example is so perfect. When you start Amazon Go on your app that accompanies the in-store experience for the first time, you're walked through this sort of guided tutorial that tells you this is how it works. It's just like a regular grocery store. You take stuff off the shelf, but the app is keeping track of what you've taken off the shelf. So, you know, don't take things off the shelf for anyone else. Never thought of that. I feel like I'm going to have to break some old lady's heart when she says, sir, can you, can you get that from the, the top shelf? And I'll say, frankly, uh, I, yeah, I cannot. And cannot. I'll have this Larry David moment. And yeah. It'll be really embarrassing. I'll, I'll never go back. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And it's, it is weird. I mean, I, I think this can be fixed. Surely, mm-hmm. you know, Amazon goes, designers can decide that they're going to uh, change the way that that happens and that there's going to be some mechanism for saying this was an item I got for somebody else or whatever. But in the meantime... It's training us within the context of that experience not to help one another. And so what happens then? Then we go to the second and third degree macro effects, right? Mm -hmm. Like when you think about how long it is before Amazon Go is the dominant retail paradigm, which doesn't seem Mm -hmm. very far-fetched, right? So this is really the future of retail we're talking about here in in very Mm. short order. So how long before we're not helping each other at all in any store and then before long, and how long we're not before, we're sort of socialized by that, not to help each other at all. And I always point out, I realize that this sounds hyperbolic and like I'm taking it to the extreme, but this is the moment where I really want to point out that experience at scale does change culture. Oh, certainly. Because yeah. experience at scale is culture. Mm-hmm. And that's what we all agree to. Whenever we have these experiences that we all participate in, and we all agree to how those things uniformly are and how we behave within those contexts. That's culture. And we're creating that culture all the time. Only we, as humans that participate in those experiences, aren't necessarily creating it. The designers of those experiences are creating it. Well, but don't you think people also struggle with that idea because we as humans sometimes like to think of ourselves as having the entirety of free will, that we're not influenced, right? So. It seems like a lot of this discussion is also having you know, harder conversations around how design, frankly, influences our behavior. And, and that's what I kind of see. It, it seems like we're in that fine line of personalization, things of that nature being fine, but then if it leads to manipulation or any kind of whiff of that, that's where we tend to push back. But yeah, I'm very, very curious because actually a lot of the area that I deal with with social media companies talks about our behavior online and, and frankly how we can bring out our, our better angels if, if you will uh, and and we, we see how the design of a, of a platform or frankly even just like the script that might come before it like say something nice right that actually influences us mm. because I mean think about how we've always done that in life you see a sign that says thank you for not smoking right they're already thanking yeah, you right. and they're already <laughs> assuming that you're not going to smoke right so it's subtle cues that, that frankly, can That's influence good. us. So where's our thank you for not being a troll online, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I would love it. Actually, that might be a good idea, you know? I'm coming up with some ideas here. I'm going to have a thank these you. There. Thank you for not being a troll online. We're just, we're just going to put those up. Twitter, like, these are free for the taking. Go just for it. Go for you it. know, go for it. <laughs> 
I think also that the complexity space is one that is emerging as super important. And I don't know if you've seen this trend, but a lot of the people I know whose intellect I most admire are really drawn right now to the idea of complexity. Yes. Yeah. And systems. And and so I think this has to do with what we're talking about with these second and third degree effects and what we can see across so many different types of uh, systems that they all connect. And this is actually the the theme of, of work I've been doing in the last year or so and pushing into the work I'm doing, moving into my new book, is this connectedness of everything. So I think that's an emerging space too. We need advisory happening at the corporate level. People who are, who are creating products within business need some better guidance. You know, the Amazon Go designers need somebody helping them recognize the second and third degree effects of decisions that they're making. But we also need this at an individual level to achieve the kind of thing that you're talking about, where we can have those individual relationships with tech and we're making those decisions in a healthy and mindful way. And I know you've been involved in this with the digital citizenship movement. How do we get there? How do we get to where we have outreach that's really useful for individuals and helps people be savvy and sophisticated? Yeah, I I think uh, it's very similar to what happened over the years with safe driving. Nobody says, well, whose responsibility is it? Is it the government? Is it the company? Or is it me as an individual? And I think that's the framework, unfortunately, that we're still thinking about with with digital citizenship. Hmm. If you're talking about the safe, savvy, and ethical use of of social media and technology, it's an interplay. We're humanity, (laughs) right? We need to be responsible. We need to use self-reporting tools when we we see trolls online, right? (laughs) Thank you for not trolling. Right, thank you for not trolling. We need to take a part and realize that we're not alone, right? We're part of this larger community and that we have an impact. It's very similar to any type of civic engagement. Right, you're not a citizen just for by just being born. You have to participate. And likewise, you also see industry that I think is gaining in their level of responsibility. With great power comes great responsibility, the Peter Parker type of principle. <laughs> and then you also have government. And and you know, hey, we pick on a lot of our people in government for not always being proactive with this. And it's true, right? But but at the same time, I think there are positive trend lines with more uh, you know, more uh, education around that area. And that's that's where we're headed. That's right? true. The time from issue hitting a, a popular New York Times yeah, article yeah. to when there's a hearing in the Senate, let's say, about it is, is a lot shorter it is. than it has been in the past. The more that the media is doing a good job of oversight and then can educate the general public, that then promotes the general public from going to their senators and saying, Hey, by the way, let's talk about this. Let's be proactive, not just reactive. And then we create new laws, which is a different framework. You talked about business models. That affects the the overall business model when you actually have safeguards of, hey, here are the confines. You change the rules of the game, right? If we don't like the way people are playing. You do have informed citizenry. And I think that's the way we're headed, right? Because we haven't always noticed that they're all related. So this is why everybody needs to play a part. And, And frankly, the other thing, I love to bring up is, you know, I'm sure you've encountered this too. So many of the conversations around tech ethics oftentimes happen off the record. And I'm not Mm. a fan of that. I'm going to tell you, I'm not a fan of it. Yeah, give me an example of what you mean by that. I get invited to a lot of events where they say, all right, chat and mouse rules. You can't repeat Uh what what we talked about here. I said, well, here's the issue. A lot of times people from big tech will reach out and say, hey, I'm really interested. We want to participate. And I said, great. And they'll say, well, David, is, is there going to be media there? And I'll say, yeah, I, I hope so. <laughs> you know? yeah. and, and, and then I'll say, oh, I, you know, mm, I'm checking my calendar. Oh, man, wow. Oh, my God. Look what happened. So mm-hmm. the point is that until we realize that, frankly, this is just a messy area, 
There's no clean solution. Once we get used to the nuance and, and the mess, we're going to push a lot of tech companies to be more transparent and more active with our own governmental bodies to, to have that natural type of oversight. You need to have a better form of collaboration because now I think tech companies are realizing, all right, well, we need to be more open about some of the issues, governments being a little more mindful about this, and also because you can better connect. Agreed. I think the hub, the ecosystem play is super important. Yeah. But I do think it makes sense that some of those discussions have to happen behind closed doors, okay. at least initially, right? Sure. Like I think for the company to be able to kind of grapple with and come to terms with what its own role is and how it how it needs to sort of get its house in order, it makes sense to some extent that this is not about you know, sort of secret societies gathering and having that conversation. We need a reality check now more than ever. Yes. But I think it's understandable that companies want to have that reality check behind closed doors initially. And then once they feel like they have a handle on what it is that they're going to do about the situation, how they're going to handle themselves, what policies they're going to put in place internally and so on, then they can go and participate in more open fora and, and help influence the discussion more publicly, right? Well, I'm resting all my hope. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Kate O'Neill to take us there. Because like you said, you're optimistic and and you have a firm grip of, of reality. But no, I, I, I get your point. And I, I think that's where we're at. <laughs> I'm sold. Oh man, thank you so much for this conversation. Kate, okay, this was great. I know we didn't get to the haiku, but that's uh, that's for next time. <laughs> next time. Just a uh, haiku hour. Yeah. Kate and David. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. For conversations you can't ignore, come back every Monday and Thursday for new episodes. Subscribe now and never stop learning.